This is your host, Corbin, and welcome to your guide for Steve Barron's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This will be part of a larger retrospective series where I review all six theatrically released films. If you have not subscribed to the podcast, you're going to want to do that to hear all of my thoughts on these films. I'm a little worried what I have got myself into after watching this first one, but you can suffer along with me. So go ahead and subscribe, like wherever you're at. But before we get into the making of the film, allow me to take you back to 1990 to remember the top movies released that year. It were Dances with Wolves, which would go on to win Best Picture, Goodfellas, which many people believe should have won Best Picture, Home Alone, Edward Scissorhands, Pretty Woman, Misery, The Godfather Part 3, Total Recall, Kindergarten Cop, which I think a lot of people may forget about that one. Check that out. It's a pretty fun movie. The Hunt for Red October, Predator 2, which I watched not that long ago, actually, for the first time. I'll link to my thoughts on Predator 2. And my personal favorite, Child's Play 2. Also, I should mention Joel Schumacher's Flatliners came out this year. Last week, I did review Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys, and then the two prior week before that, I review Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, both Schumacher films. So go ahead and check those reviews out. Those will be linked below. From that year, we have reviewed Back to the Future Part 3, Jacob's Ladder, Die Hard 2, a lot of year for twos apparently, and Rocky 5. Links to those reviews are below. If you'd like to reminisce more about the films of 90, then head over to letterbox.com. Make sure to follow me and Alan over there. Links to our profiles are below. The 62nd Academy Awards Best Picture went to Driving Miss Daisy. It was six years before the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came to the big screen. They started their life on the comic book page back in 1984. They were created by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird as a one-shot comic, Believe it or not, but the popularity was so immense, they became an ongoing series. They are now so popular, they've crossed over with Batman and many other major comic book characters. If you missed the 80s like me, then you may remember them for their arcade games, which have since been ported to console. Also, their toy line was at one point, if not still, the biggest toy line ever sold. They were on this small screen in their animated series Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which ran for 193 episodes, believe it or not, from 1987 to 1996. So this did run even while the trilogy of original films was still in theaters. This was still on the TV going strong. Now, I have not watched this series. I don't know if I've ever seen an episode. Maybe I'll try and check one out before my review next week. Well, after another children's animated property, that being He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, failed to translate successfully to the big screen, movie studios were worried to touch this property. So it fell to New Line Cinema, picked it up for distribution rights. In fact, they distributed the original theatrical trilogy, which would help push them more into the mainstream, since at the time they were distributing B-movie type independent films. It would be just 10 years after this film they would be distributing, or at least help distribute, The Lord of the Rings. Director Steve Barron was able to attract none other than Jim Henson to work on the puppeteering for the Turtles. At first, he didn't want to work on the film due to the violent nature of the story since he was attracted to more educational things like the Muppets and Sesame Street, different things like that. But the director was able to eventually convince him. Also, Henson's son, Brian Henson, was second unit director and master puppeteer for the film. 
Sadly, Jim Henson passed away two months after the film was released. Speaking of famous people, Sam Rockwell. Yes, the Academy Award-winning Sam Rockwell. This is his third film. He is prominently, more or less, I guess you could say, featured in the film. You can see him. Also, Skeet Ulrich is in here somewhere. Now, director Steve Barron was a music video director of many famous songs, such as Take Me On by AHA, Billie Jean by Michael Jackson, and many, many more. His only directorial effort at the time was Electric Dreams. Surprisingly, despite the limited budget, the voice actors for Turtles never donned the suits. Those in the suits and those who give the, I would say to me, iconic voices, these are the voices I grew up with for the characters, are different actors. Now, as far as marketing goes, aside from the toys, when the film was released on VHS, Pizza Hut included a $20 coupon to buy Pizza Hut products, which is ironic since the Turtles order from Domino's in the movie. Now, Domino's is late in the movie, so maybe that's what made them switch over to Pizza Hut. When the film was released overseas, it did have to be heavily edited to meet UK and German censor standards. Mainly, the fighting was tamped down, weapons were obscured, Shredder's death, spoiler alert, is severely limited. Cartoon-like sounds were added to soften the violence, and even the Turtle Power song was edited to change the word ninja to hero. The film was officially released Thursday, March 1st, 1990. As of the time of this recording, that was 32 years, 4 months, and 18 days ago. Yeah, it's been over three decades. It did receive a PG rating. It was barely over an hour and a half. How did critics and audiences think of it? Well, I can't find a cinema score for the first three films, but according to Rotten Tomatoes, 41% of critics approved of it, but it does have a much stronger, it actually doubles it with the audience score at 81%, which is a series high for audience and actually a series high for critics. So that should tell you what we're in for if 41% is the you know bar, the, the hurdle to get over. Metascore 51, critics were pretty much split down the middle. It does retain an IMDb rating as of the time of this recording at 6.7, which is a little bit above average, I would say. So it's somewhat of a mediocre rating, but it's not terrible. It does have a letterbox rating of 3.3, I, would, I should say all of these scores are series highs, so it's really not going to get much better than this as far as all of these scores go, but that 3.3 on Letterboxd really isn't that bad. Now, I did speak about having a small budget. It had a $13.5 million budget, I would say, back in 1990. That's I would still consider that to be a small-ish budget film. Now, it was number one at the box office opening weekend, $25.3 million dollars. So it did nearly double its budget opening weekend, and it only opened in 2,000 theaters. So what did it go up against? Well, it actually dethroned Pretty Woman, which I guess was kind of a big deal since that was its second week at cinemas. The Hunt for Red October came in at number three. Driving Miss Daisy at number four, which, as I said, was actually... Um, had already won Best Picture by that point, which is pretty impressive since it had been at the box office for 16 weeks. It was probably its Best Picture win that bumped it up in the box office to that. Uh, more people went to go see it. And Opportunity Knox debuted at number five, which is too bad. I think that's a really fun Dana Carvey movie. Definitely check that one out. 
So they did choose the perfect time to release this movie. It was unstoppable in its second week. It had gained 220 theaters, still number one at the box office. It beat Ernest Goes to Jail, which came in at number three. The First Power came in at number four. Johnny Depp's Cry Baby came in at number eight. Even in its third week, it had gained 151 theaters, so it's doing pretty dang well. Still number one at the box office, down to $14 million. Uh, the top five exactly the same from the previous week. Even in its fourth week, which we're getting towards the end of April here, it's still number one at the box office. Not gaining any theaters, but down to $9.7 million for a gross. Miami Blues does disrupt the box office coming in at number four for its opening week. So finally, in its fifth weekend, the last weekend of April, it had been at the box office for over a month at this point. It finally was dethroned to number two, grossing $6.9 million. But at that point, it had already grossed $98 million, just shy of $100 million. So off a $13.5 million budget, this film is doing exceedingly well. So what knocked this film from number one to number two? Strangely enough, it was Pretty Woman. Yeah, Pretty Woman. It had been in the box office for six weeks, and it barely beat out this film by $100,000, roughly. Crazy enough, also The Guardian came in at number three, Spaced Invaders, number for a Disney movie that I've never even heard of. I won't read you the rest of the box office, but it is a weird thing to go look into because even going into May, first weekend of May, it's still number two. Second weekend of May, it's still number two. Finally, in its eighth week at the box office, it's been there for two months, it finally drops down to number four. Even over Memorial Day weekend, it's staying in the top five. It had to be in theaters for 10 weeks before it finally dropped. So this film was persistent even into the end of June. So at this point, we're already into summer and it's still doing. I mean, it, it only grossed $800,000, but it's still number 11 at the box office. Domestically, it would go on to gross $135.3 million dollars. In the foreign market, $66.7 million for a worldwide total of $202 million. So we're looking at nearly a quarter of a billion dollars based off a $13 million independent low-budget film. I should say at the time when this was at the box office, this was the highest independent film to uh, gross. Uh, I would also say $135 million, it grossed 10 times its budget just domestically so i don't want to understate it this film was huge audiences loved it critics were meh on it but they didn't think it was terrible they're just kind of split on it i would say this is a huge win for this film thank you listeners for coming along with me as i've been your guide to the production and impact of this film now that you have your guide to teenage mutant ninja turtles make sure to subscribe to the podcast for my full review coming next monday and tune in the week after as we learn the secret of the use.
The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.